That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You, a special 4th of July holiday edition of uh, today's show, airing right on the 4th of July holiday itself. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time, if it's on the holiday or at some other point, uh, to take some time with me and uh, talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in this country, particularly on this holiday. Um, But uh, thank you so much for doing so. Uh, If you're listening live, uh, happy holiday to you. If you're listening as a podcast, thank you so much for doing so and for subscribing and leaving a review for me. I really do appreciate it. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You should find me easily. Would love to chat with you. You can also find out more about uh, my broader writing work at wordsbyjdk.com. And uh, would love to hear your thoughts on all the different uh, pieces that are there. Information about the novel I'm pitching, as well as original writing, uh, lots of other stuff, including episodes of this show, in case you've missed any of them. Uh, Right at the outset, I'd like to uh, thank this show's uh, generous sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, uh, for their sponsorship. And uh, you can check out uh, what they do and how well they do it at airside.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, and you'll be hearing about them uh, during the upcoming breaks in the show. And uh, as this is a holiday edition, uh, I'm recording this in advance of the holidays, so um, not as current on the news that will be, you know, <laughs> at the forefront of everybody's mind on July 4th. Uh, well, that's okay. And uh, I will be, like I did last week, I will be flying solo again this week. Uh, and we'll be talking about the holiday as well as some things that I think in light of recent events going on in the country, uh, tumultuous events, momentous events, particularly in legal standing, uh, talking about uh, how all that, how I'm reflecting on all of that on the holiday. So, uh Let's see. With that in mind, uh, and no news, what, there's one thing we can really talk about. So let's, for today's short segment, what in the world is going on, let's just focus on one. Well, it's clearly those are those are the sounds of the Fourth of July. So the, the nation's Independence Day, the nation's birthday, and uh, always a a time for uh, long weekends, uh, vacations, barbecues, family get-togethers. Uh, for me, it means hot dogs and baseball, and yeah, fireworks uh, to a certain degree. Although those are becoming uh, more and more bad. Oh, there's baseball. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, such a happy sound. Oh, sliding into home. He's safe. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, and and for me at least, uh, a time of reflection. Also, holidays tend to be that way for me. 
no matter what it is, on the nation's birthday, uh, I tend to take a look back on the previous year and the life of the country and and uh, kind of juxtapose that with its you know historical development and uh, and what is coming up. And of course, with everything that's been happening in the last few weeks, uh, questions of independence and rights and equality are at the forefront of not just people's minds, but of conversations and our discourse, both in private and, and publicly. And so I've been thinking a lot uh, about that as well. And, uh, you know, going back to last week's episode where uh, somebody pointed out to me, both barrels came out. Um, that well, that is certainly true. And uh, I stand by all that I said uh, last week, uh, in particular, about uh, what I've the, the short-sightedness, I believe, in the overturning of the Roe versus Wade uh, statute, uh, and and also about the law of unintended consequences that I think uh, will reveal itself in very short order um, about what this will do in the country. And I think it will be something that a lot of people from all sides of the political spectrum uh, may not expect. And I don't mean that in a doomsday scenario uh, vibe in any way, any stretch. But what I will also add to that that I didn't uh, say last week, and it, and it pertains to what we're going to do this week, is the, the issue at hand, of course, are the rights that we have. Who has rights to what? And do other people have rights that others don't have? That is, that is the fundamental dilemma at the heart of the American experiment and figuring out how to create a more perfect union, which seems to me to hinge entirely on the rights of the people within said union being equal or moving in that direction uh, as quickly and productively as possible. With that, of course, is, and this is what I would add from last week, is we all have a responsibility individually, no matter where we are on the political spectrum, the social, the religious, uh, you pick a spectrum. We all have a responsibility to, to take responsibility for ourselves and to step in those positive directions and to do the best we can to take the cards we are dealt on our own behalf and uh, work with them well enough to benefit ourselves, but then also to help one another in that process. To me, that's just better humanity uh, and better civics. Um, and as I mentioned last week, I think that's just better you know, spiritual practice as well. And so with that in mind, I figured I would branch off that today uh, to talk about this in light of the holiday and put on my historian hat and talk a little bit about some of the varying issues that I think uh, we are facing at this point in this country's history about rights. Go back in time a little bit in history to talk a little bit about what the historical record might suggest and what we might be missing in our public discourse about rights. And then just some thoughts on on where we can go from here. So anyway, let's look back on this. Of course, uh, a holiday like the 4th of July, as I've talked about on this show before, um, is certainly one where we can reflect on on the positives that uh, exist for being an American and the freedoms that we do have and that we do enjoy and the rights that we do have. And those are those are no small number, particularly when we measure them historically against uh, the history of humanity in a lot of ways uh, and even contemporarily now uh, in the world. Uh, there are Americans enjoy more rights and more freedoms than many other countries. Uh, that said, it is becoming more and more of an open question of what, to what degree the United States practices these and enshrines these to the best of its ability compared to other nations. That is becoming more and more of an open question, much to the chagrin of a number of people that makes a lot of Americans, uh, uncomfortable to hear. 
And it leads to a lot of charges of people suggesting that America may have work to do, that it may not be the uh, the paragon of democratic virtue. It leads leads to accusations of being un-American, of, of, of being traitorous in some cases. Um, I just think it's honest to have the conversation about, are we doing the best we can with what we have? And uh, generally, I think the answer is no uh, at this point. Uh, but again, I don't say that out of fatalism. I just say that out of a not only honest assessment from what I see, but also the hope uh, that we can, as we have before as a nation, uh, recognize that and move forward towards something better. It would be nice if it didn't always seem to take conflict and crisis and peril uh, in order to move us in uh, more positive directions. Um, but nevertheless, that is a part of you know, humanity's development, I suppose, not just, not just in America. So with that in mind, the other side of the holiday, of course, is that it is, uh, besides celebrating those freedoms, it, it, can get, it can be easy to get lost in nostalgia. And I've spent a number of episodes of this show from a historical perspective talking about the dangers of nostalgia. Because with nostalgia, uh, usually uglier truths or smudgier realities get moved out of the equation. And nostalgia is usually about remembering something positive. Um, and the, the negatives tend to get pushed to the sides or excluded. And over time, those can be forgotten entirely. Um, and so with that, the, the logical end of that, if one starts down that road, is myths end up being made about the past that don't reflect uh, the, the true historical development of the country or the periods in which we might be talking about in the past and instead become a kind of wishful thinking about where the country came from, what it's always been about. And if one has a flawed understanding, incomplete understanding, and not a real honest overall assessment of a country's past or any subject's past, it is going to have a direct effect on how people understand its importance when making present decisions. So, for example, with these recent Supreme Court decisions um, around abortion in particular, but also individual rights to carry guns in public, uh, to use public school vouchers to go to schools that exclude non-Christian students and uh, the right of people to make religious expressions in uh, public school settings. With all that in mind, the Supreme Court uh, has been operating from what it sees as historical elements of the nature of the Constitution, what the uh, founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution intended for the, con the Constitution to be and what it was intended to do and to not do. And, of course, a historical understanding of the development of law, jurisprudence, politics ever since. And it's one of the reasons why historians, not just like me, but many others, harp on the importance time and time again to students of history and otherwise that a broader understanding with more depth of history is imperative. It's just as important as learning math, just as important as learning science. Um, in fact, it could be, um, you could argue that it is a umbrella skill to develop the under which all those other skills uh, should also be learned and understood. Because, of course, everything has a history. From the shoes on your feet to the style of the house over your head uh, to the political party that you are a part of uh, to the book genre and movie genres that you love the most, um, even to the designs of the clothes you wear, all of those have a history. And so with all that taken together, the more we know about it, so the idea goes, 
the better we can be in discerning what is possible in the present and what might be the best choices going forward. It also can help us understand and enshrine what we believe and importantly, why we believe it and remain open to adjusting those opinions, beliefs, and positions along the way. And if you think that sounds impossible, well, I understand that. I would also say that almost any historian you ask will tell you it is possible because that's what historians do. That's how historians tend to view all of those things. Uh, history is dependent upon evidence, interpretation, argument, and debate. And I've said before, it is a very humbling discipline in the sense that when new evidence of something comes forward um, that might run counter to a historian's conclusion about a certain subject, it is, it is on that historian professionally and I would say morally and ethically personally to acknowledge that difference and if they deem it on the basis of evidence to change their mind. Uh, we tend to seemingly uh, view changing one's mind as a sign of weakness uh, these days or wishy-washiness at best. When it's on the basis of evidence combined with conviction um, and a connection to things that really matter as opposed to the myths that we make up in our head, changing mind, changing mind isn't, is not only not wishy-washy or weak, it's actually brave and uh, imperative and important for personal and for community growth. So with that in mind, you know, uh, there's a lot that we can cover in uh, terms of how that looks. And so when we come back from our first break, I'll dive into a couple of historical examples with you um, as we talk about the 4th of July and all that matters about it on this show is all about you. We'll be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Don't ask me to talk. Don't ask me to talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacy Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder. Don't ask me to talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI.
Welcome back, everyone, to a 4th of July holiday edition of this show is all about you. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, here talking about uh, history on 4th of July, in particular, taking a look at notions of rights. And before the break, I sort of waxed more philosophically, <laughs> more broadly, about uh, what I think history can contribute uh, to these discussions and why it's actually imperative for contemporary discussions and decision-making on laws and ethics and religion, you name it. But I wanted to get into um, a couple of examples of this and some of the dangers uh, involved when, uh, when history is used for particular means in particular directions. And uh, this certainly is not unique. The idea of cherry-picking history to fit one's worldview is something that anybody from anywhere at any time, uh, whatever their belief system, whatever their political party, can and does do on a regular basis. Um, to see things a certain way, to justify a certain position. And so that is something that I would just want to say at the outset here is always a danger. And that's why uh, learning about a historical period or historical subject takes more than reading one book or watching one documentary. To really invest in it, to really understand it, takes regular engagement, just the same way it takes regular engagement to uh, better understand, internalize, and act upon just about any subject. Uh, that we learn about. And so uh, at the front end, I want to make that clear because what I'm going to talk about is something that in light of recent events, I think is worth highlighting. And that is uh, the historical cherry picking that I see uh, that has been going on with recent Supreme Court decisions uh, that has everybody talking, no matter where their position is on any of these things. And uh, here's, here's a couple things that are worth keeping in mind. Uh, Many people who know me have heard me say this before, but uh, facts can get in the way of perfectly good opinions. <laughs> you know? uh, and what I mean by that is people hold on to opinions uh, oftentimes uh, very deeply and very securely and are reluctant to give them up. But one of the things I've always loved about history is that when historical facts are understood, laid out, and the conversations about their importance unfold, they can really challenge um, a lot of strongly held opinions. And I think sometimes one of the big dividing lines between human beings is the degree to which when confronted with those types of things, people are willing to adjust their point of view to take, uh, to take in um, and take account of those new facts and to what degree people are just going to dig in their heels and try to find some way around that. I've always found history much more instructive if it's seen as part of a larger conversation uh, about the meaning of the past and the past itself rather than just you know, here's the facts, this is what it's about, that type of thing. A lot of people recently um, are just learning uh, the term uh, originalist school of thought when it comes to the Constitution, as opposed to what I suppose you could call the living document point of view of the Constitution. And uh, just a little bit of background. Uh, if you're my age, mid to late 40s uh, and older, and even a little bit younger, when you learned about the Constitution in school, chances are you heard it referred to as a living document, meaning that even though it was drafted and codified in 1787 by the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution, many of whom are famous names in American history, that even though it was codified then, it was designed to continue to grow and adapt and change as America grew, adapted, and changed. In particular, it would do so by having amendments added to the Constitution as uh, situations dictated through a very elaborate process 
of uh, working through the legislature, being approved by the courts, submitted by the executive, and then ratified by two-thirds of the states. So to add an amendment is a very weighty task and a very difficult thing to do politically, and it was designed that way. And the idea, of course, as was taught for a long time, was that the Founding Fathers understood that times would change, and if the American experiment worked and the country existed uh, for centuries, and it's existed for 245 years now, uh, that the country would inevitably change in ways that they could not anticipate. And therefore, a framework had to be set up for changes to come about slowly that would protect the American Republic from things like revolutionary activity, uh, but would also allow for growth, adaptation um, in just about every area of life. And that's how we tended to learn about that. Now, the originalist school of thought, which is, it's worth stressing, is embraced by the conservative majority of judges on the current Supreme Court and is the primary guiding principle legally for the three newest editions from the previous presidential term. Uh, this originalist school really began to emerge uh, in conservative social, legal, and political thinking during the 80s in the Reagan era. And uh, depending on who you ask and to varying degrees, they will debate its origins. Uh, but what is generally agreed upon is that it resulted as a conservative response, some would call it a reactionary, some would call it a response, to the massive changes in American law and constitutionality that came about in the 1960s. Uh, the, with the civil rights movement in particular, the passage of uh, the equal, uh, the, uh, the, excuse me, the, the, equal, uh, the equal rights amendment, or the equal, um, oh, I'm losing it, civil rights movement. Anyway, all of that and all the social changes that came with it. And the challenges, of course, in the 70s, the shooting down of the equal rights amendment, that's what I was trying to get to, uh, that would have codified women uh, under the law as equal citizens and, and, and deserving of equal pay. That getting shot down was seen as sort of the beginning of this conservative swing. And in uh, a number of conservative uh, legal societies, the Federalist Society being the, the one that's most well-known that a lot of these justices were a part of, they began to pitch what appears to be, and again, this is debated, a very different idea than that living document notion that most of us understand the Constitution to be. And this originalist, quote-unquote, school stresses that what should be focused on is instead what the Founding Fathers intended at the time of its ratification, 1787 and all that, and that everything needs to stem from that. Now, depending on who you ask, that does not mean that uh, amendments couldn't be made because at first, at first blush, you could say, well, none of the founding fathers ever intended for there to be amendments. <laughs> so other than the first 10, the Bill of Rights. So what about that? You know, arguments uh, can be made about that, that they would have to fit in with the established laws and the established uh, parameters of the Constitution. So that all can be debated. But nevertheless, what is clear is this school of thought stresses going back to the source, 1787, a much more limited view of what is possible under the Constitution, because inherently those founding fathers were limited to their time and place and perspectives and worldviews based on what they understood the world to be and what it could be. Um, so it's very restrictive on that regard. And what that does by extension is it does not allow 
for nearly as many broadly uh, brought about interpretations as would come about later on. Now, with that in mind, there are a few things that I think are fundamentally unsound about this perspective historically, and I'm not the only one. There are a number of historians and legal scholars at the biggest schools and think tanks in the country that uh, reject a lot of elements of the originalist interpretation, primarily because if we're going, it doesn't necessarily stand on its own merits, nor do the practitioners of the originalist interpretation uh, always stick to the period that they're talking about. So, for example, one that seems to me one of the biggest flaws of this idea is under an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, Two of these very supreme conservative Supreme Court justices who embrace this idea shouldn't even be on the court because one of them is a woman <laughs> and the other is a black man, Clarence Thomas, neither of which were enshrined in the original uh, drafting of the Constitution to have the legal right to vote. And in the case of uh, blacks, weren't even considered people, never mind citizens. Right, The Constitutional Convention kicked the question of slavery down the road and a compromise was made with the southern states. They, they were able to keep slavery. And in fact, they were even able to count three, uh, three slaves as, every, as five people for representation in Congress because the North had such a bigger uh, population for representation in the House of Representatives. So all these compromises were put together. Slavery was kicked down the road later on to be dealt with ultimately with the Civil War. Okay. Um, but that's that seems to be a flaw. Women did not have the right to vote. In fact, under the original framing of the Constitution, the only people who could vote were landed white males who owned property, which meant the most affluent and, at that time, the most educated in American society. So the idea wasn't supposed to be that more and more people would get the right to vote, and therefore then, in a true democratic fashion, those numbers would make decisions on who would be elected president, who would be elected to Congress, what laws would be passed, that type of thing. That was not intended. It was a republic view where you had people working on behalf of the people, the most educated, the most literate, the most enlightened, if you will, and then they would lead people. I mean, it was, it was kind, of a, you know, kind of a hybrid version uh, involving like ancient Greek ideas, some Roman Republic ideas as well as perceptions on what those things actually were that don't necessarily add up uh, historically today. But nevertheless, that's what it was. And so an originalist interpretation is really restrictive in that sense. And to what degree could the founding fathers see that there was going to have to be a reckoning at some point where slaves would have to be freed? That was not really discussed all that much. So that seems to be pretty limiting right away. And when it comes to recent decisions by the Supreme Court, they did similar cherry picking in their rulings. So uh, <laughs> I'll post this later on words by JDK.com. But uh, there's an article in, uh, recently by Jonathan Zeitz, who's a, who's a historian and a scholar, who was talking about the Second Amendment and this ruling um, uh, by the Supreme Court that shot down a New York law that made it uh, very difficult for people to carry concealed handguns in public. That has been struck down. And the court has said that the Constitution, in originalist framework, reaffirms the individual right to bear arms. Well, Zeitz points out, and others like him have done that, 
that the original framers of the Constitution weren't talking about individual gun rights. They were talking about in the Second Amendment because militias were needed to defend public areas. And of course, this is a point where the United States is still building a military to defend itself from external enemies, that they had, they needed to be able to have those arms to effectively protect areas. But even if we're going to take a look at this historically, there were discussions even among the framers of the Constitution on limits to what gun ownership could look like. No less a framer than James Madison, one of the most important, maybe the most important men involved in the framing of the Constitution, in the Virginia legislature pushed hard outside of militias. If people weren't going to have guns for militias, they shouldn't be allowed to just have them willy-nilly. He pushed that legislation forward himself. Now, it didn't pass in the Virginia legislature, and it was really meant to, you know, to, make, to, to bring about some restrictions on deer hunting so that not everybody was going to be going out blowing away deer, right? But nevertheless, there was an awareness from James Madison himself that having weapons in order to defend the common good was one thing. Nowhere does the Second Amendment say it is an individual right to have guns for the sake of having guns. Now, this is not to dive us into this debate about whether Americans should or should not own guns. The point is, is that a historical understanding would seemingly be vital to underpinning anything you would call an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. But if you don't have the history right on what was actually there, what was actually put forward, and what was actually acted upon and debated, you have no business making decisions about the present on the basis of that interpretive framework if you don't know it, if you don't know that history. The living document approach to the Constitution also similarly needs strong historical underpinnings in order to make clear decisions. It also is the only interpretation between these two that allows for new understandings and new changings of what it means to be equal, including things like ending slavery and enshrining black Americans as citizens. The first one was the 13th Amendment. second one was the 14th Amendment. You can't have those unless it is a living document that is open to new realities, new understandings of what it means to have rights to be equal under the Constitution, under the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence in a very general document in terms of its rhetoric. But it seems to me that the limits then, if, if one is going to say that the originalist idea of history or the originalist idea of the Constitution is more historically accurate, well, then you better make sure it's accurate. And in this case, I don't think it is. And there are a number of people who agree, who know a lot more about these things than I do. You know, and the other area, too, where this matters is with the uh, recent decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Similar thing. In its ruling, Justice Alito did not refer back to 1787. He referred back to laws in 1858 that states had put forward, some states had put forward, curbing abortion practices, what we would call reproductive rights, 
in those states. So not only did this originalist not call back to an originalist idea, but just avoided it altogether. Because back in 1787, here's the kicker. Back in 1787, this is how terminated pregnancies were understood. A woman was the one who made the call on this. And this is what I mean by this. A woman could go into a physician and when she felt something called a quickening, which was the kicking of the baby, once the baby had been felt in her womb to kick, that baby was alive. It was up to her to tell the doctor whether that had happened or not. (laughs) That's it. So it wasn't about, there weren't debates about at conception. Of course, because medical science didn't quite fully understand exactly what was happening yet at the time. (laughs) And it was the woman's call. And what was wide open in this? The need for doctors to be able to do what doctors needed to do. Questions about, uh, about the health of the mother were just assumed. The health of the mother mattered. In the case of a pregnancy gone wrong, the attempt was to deliver the baby and save the mother if at all possible. It was the doctor's call in the end if a hard decision had to be made. That fits more of an originalist interpretation. If we're going to go back and turn the founding fathers into somehow the equivalent of divine saints, that everything they said and everything they did and everything they knew was sacrosanct, then the conservative justices on the Supreme Court are not following through on a historically accurate interpretation of the Founding Fathers. And, from my view, the originalist idea goes out the window. If for no other reason, even though I think there's a lot of reasons it should go out the window already, goes out the window right there. And, of course, that begs the question as what is the advantage of it for conservative advocates of this point of view? Well, the the It's really clear. It makes change snail-paced at best and impossible at worst. It's meant to conserve, conservative, a certain status quo or to prevent too much change too much quickly, too much too quickly. And while that was a concern of all the founding fathers, rapid change could be revolutionary and destabilizing. That's conservative with a small c. And based on all their writings and based on all our understanding, 200 plus years of historical inquiry, the founding fathers understood that things changed and the mentalities changed. They themselves were of different mentalities and belief systems than just a couple of generations before them, thanks to the intellectual movement known as the Enlightenment and the unique experience of living in the 13 colonies of the British Empire in North America. So all that taken together shows just one example of why I think history is so important and why its abuse can be so incredibly dangerous. So when we come back from our second break, we'll talk a little bit more about this as we come to the end of this episode is of this show is all about you. Excuse me. Stick around. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. 
We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. I have my historian hat on uh, talking about <laughs> why history matters. Um, and last, before the, se- uh, before the break, I talked about uh, his- history and the originalist school of thinking around the Constitution, uh, which I think is, is seriously flawed. Uh, but to wrap up today, I want I wanted to stay focused in that area on this 4th of July um, to just put up forward a few things to think about and a few things to consider uh, about the Constitution and about our body politic at large. One of the things about the originalist uh, perspective on the Constitution that I don't like is that it moves us away from this idea of what I think the Constitution really is, a living document that is meant to grow and adapt and adjust. Um, and it turns it into somehow a sacred text, a sacred text that is supposed to be unchanging, unflinching, and that as more time goes by, despite any kind of changes in worldviews, technology, politics, the world at large, must be jammed into, <laughs> as a round peg, into a square hole, or whatever that saying is, no matter what. Uh, it doesn't work with any type of text, but in particular with the Constitution, which is meant to be a ruling document for a growing nation that no one has the ability to interpret or anticipate exactly where it's going to go or how or what that will look like. I've said many times on this show before that the only thing that we see as maybe an inevitable law of reality in history is the law of unintended consequences intentions to go in a certain direction they may actually happen but oftentimes what really drives history forward are the unexpected things the big changes the big moments or the slow steady shifts that can take place below the surface that can slowly and imperceptibly seemingly change a society and to make the constitution into a sacred text i believe is dangerous because one it doesn't allow for growth and it is completely subject to the interpretation of the people who are in power to interpret it and implement it. That seems to me to be fundamentally un-American in that sense. The other reason why I think it is dangerous to do this is because then it takes the people who wrote it and it makes them something other than human. So the founding fathers, people have a lot of opinions about them. And this is where I'm going to cast an even wider net. I really targeted Uh, conservative views of the Constitution. But here I'm going to open this up and talk a little bit about how we view historical figures. And I I believe there's there's an issue at hand with historical figures that we need to address as a nation and consider individually, no matter where we are on the political, social, religious spectrum. 
And that is seemingly we want our the historical figures that we see as influential and important. We seem to really want them to be all good in every way. Or if they're all bad, all their accomplishments, their beliefs need to go out the window with them. And the founding fathers are just an example of this. There are many, and we saw this in the big battle a few years ago over statues, right, being put up and taken down of various people. Uh, on either side, there are people who will lionize the founding fathers no matter what, as the brilliant minds that came up with the Constitution, that, came, that enshrined Enlightenment notions of liberty and equal rights into something workable. And therefore, that is how they should be remembered. And then there are those who counter with that saying, well, a number of them also owned slaves. And that's a problem. And so for some on that side of the equation, they argue that we should not pay any attention to the great thinking of, for example, of uh, Thomas Jefferson. And I mean great in the sense of created important dynamics and, and accomplishments, or even George Washington or others. And there's a problem with that. And it's not just with the founding fathers, but Man, if one really lionizes them as somehow all-seeing, somehow outside the realm of human limitation that all of us have had before them or after them, if we turn them into something that they aren't, the danger becomes that we then interpret everything they say and everything they do through a lens of they were automatically right from the very beginning. But that has more to do with us projecting our ideas onto them from the present, anachronism, than it does oftentimes with the reality of who they were, what they knew, and what they believed possible. The flip side is also true. If we are to take the distasteful parts of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, James Madison, because they were slave owners, and throw out everything else about them historically that's important, then we are throwing out some of the very bedrock principles and practices that allowed for later developments towards more equality, equal rights, equal voting. We're throwing all of that out with it. And that's not a good idea either. It is possible, it seems to me, and, and historians tend to view things, it is, imp it is possible to take a look at historically relevant individuals and say, this was really important about them and what they did. This part <laughs> isn't as nice. This part is more problematic. We tend to want our heroes and our villains to be consistent in being either a hero or a villain, which means them living up to our own standards or living down <laughs> to our standard of what an enemy is or a bad person is. And I doubt that any of us would want to be similarly judged in the present or in the future in a similar way. In fact, I would argue what makes people like Thomas Jefferson, the Founding Fathers, others, um, so profoundly interesting and important is the recognition of all of those paradoxes, contradictions, their flaws, and their virtues. And it's not the only one. I grew up in the Lutheran Church, as listeners know, and even though the Lutheran Church rejects the idea of make, you know, making anyone into saints— uh, if anyone gets close to that status, it's Martin Luther. <laughs> you know? And uh, 
the great reformer who, who launched the uh, reformation of the Catholic Church and essentially began the Protestant movement and every Protestant church uh, in the world for the last 500 years ties back some level to Luther. Uh, and so, of course, in Lutheran Church, everything he wrote is studied deeply and enshrined in everything from doctrine to theology to uh, church practices and all that. He also, if you take a look at him historically, not the nicest of guys. He was ill-tempered, anti-Semitic, in some cases violently, and signed off on the crushing of the Peasants' Revolt, <laughs> where he, princes killed 100,000 peasants who were rising up against them. It is not the best history of a Christian reformer. And yet, holding both of those side by side, the importance of what he did as a reformer, alongside the not-so-nice parts of him, keeps him a human. It makes him inherently more interesting, and it keeps us from making too much of him or making too little of him. It's those two things, the flaws the successes, the virtues, the vices, that when we recognize them as inherently a part of every single person, it gives us a container in which to explore people, their ideas, their effects, their influence, their importance over time, without turning them into somebody they aren't. And without inflating them to a status that they simply should not have and probably wouldn't want for themselves in the present, or reducing them to nothing because they don't match what our current standards are of what is right, wrong, that type of thing. Now, there are, of course, limits to that, and it's a slippery thing. You know, talk, depending on the historical figure we're talking about, those things can get dicey. Right? Pick a leader. You're not going to hear me. You're not going to hear me sit and talk about Adolf Hitler in a similar way. Well, here are all his virtues, and here are all his vices. You know why? Because all those vices dominated everything about him and what he did and what happened. Those things matter in the end. And those are the judgments that people have to make in the long run. The guy's entire worldview was to destroy other people in the name of racial purity. He embraced cataclysm and mass murder. Anything other than that, that we might have seen as quote-unquote good, doesn't matter <laughs> compared to those things. Hence why people aren't putting up statues of the guy, nor should they. And it's why, from my opinion, people like, you know, to go back to the statues debate, statues of people like Robert E. Lee or Nathan Bedford Forrest should have been taken down. Because what they are most known for, their biggest contribution was to the protection of slavery. It's that simple. And that is a judgment in the end that we make, but that is a collective judgment over time. So it isn't easy. It isn't clean. It isn't consistent. But it's also not really supposed to be. We all seemingly want our heroes and our villains to be easy. We all seem to want our history to be, to be similarly easy and the pass forward to be clear and easier than they really are. And what I would ask us all to consider is, why do we want those things and believe those things are possible when they never have been that way before? Rights of any kind seemingly always need to be fought for. The American Revolution was a fight, in part, for rights from the British Empire. 
The Civil War can be seen similarly. Civil rights movement, the women's suffrage movement. All of those required fighting for them. It is not just an American experience that people have to fight for rights that others are given and others are excluded from. Maybe it's a part of our collective humanity that we, that's the side of us, that selfishness, that wants to preserve those things for ourselves, particularly if we're in a privileged position. Maybe that is part of it. But another part, equally as part, a human part of this, is the desire for people to grow, change, give, prosper, advance, evolve. That's in our DNA too. And the tension between the two seems to be what often drives history forward. So when I think about Independence Day, yes, I think about where I live and the benefits I've had living in this country, the blessings I have in it. I also, by its very nature, take a look at its shortcomings. And it is not anti-American to take a look at the shortcomings of the nation. In fact, it's actually dyed in the wool of being an American to take a look at that, particularly when we view the Constitution as a living, breathing thing that can change over time. When we do that, it allows us to take a look back and say, we have outgrown this part of ourselves. We have outgrown that mentality. We have outgrown that perspective, that prejudice. That's a good thing. Not every nation in the world does that with its constitution. That is a potentially very unique thing. And it matters in the world. To wrap up really quickly, a quick story. Just the other day, I was talking with a friend of mine who lives in Australia. And we were talking a little bit about what was going on in this country. And, and she mentioned to me that all the same news that we get in the United States every day, they get the same in Australia. <laughs> What's happening in America is on every day in Australia. And she said, there's an, she reminded me of the old adage that when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. That is still true in a lot of ways. A number of people have looked to the United States, continue to look to the United States as a signpost, if nothing else, of what might be possible, where we could go, and at best, a leader in moving towards more universal human rights across the board for people, no matter who they are, where they are, what they believe in, what they look like, and what they practice. The perception in Australia, as well, well as other areas around the world, is that the United States is moving away from that signpost status. And that the sneezes that it's putting out there might be giving people worse than a cold. And it's worth keeping in mind. So I think about that on the 4th of July as well. The larger responsibility that the founding fathers understood that the great American experiment was going to, in part, show what was possible in other areas of the world as well. What was possible when human endeavor and human freedom were put forward and enshrined and protected, what could happen? There's been a lot of positive growth, obviously, from that in the United States and around the world. I would ask us to consider whether or not we're still doing a good job of protecting that, nurturing that, and growing that. I'm not sure we are. And if we aren't, no better time than the present than to start getting back on course, as far as I'm concerned. So with that in mind, that's what I'll be thinking about on this 4th of July, and I encourage you to be thinking about it, even as you go about 
enjoying all the things that you associate with July 4th, even if that's just a day off of work. (laughs) Hope you enjoy all of that. And uh, I hope you take this time coming out of this episode to do some of that reflection and dig into some of these historical subjects about the Founding Fathers, the Constitution, and others. It is part of our contemporary life, whether we see it or not. And maybe one of the positives to come out of everything that's happened in the last couple weeks is that this will be a jolt to the system that we should all care about constitutional history and about civics and history in general and how we understand it and how we learn about it and how we practice it and how we use it in our decision-making. So thanks for joining me. You can check out more about me at wordsbyjdk.com, including this episode as well as follow-ups to it. Uh, You can also uh, contact me there with any questions if you have them. If you missed any part of this episode or others, you can download as a podcast from wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, The thank yous, as I always feel I need to put forward uh, because it matters. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. You can check them out at airsci.org. The original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. And special thanks for contributing to this episode and to all that went well for me this week goes to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Mark and Yolanda Frazier, Bruce Bullard, Antoinette Bernardo, Sandy Scholl, Stacey Heller, Bruce Flommer, Ann and Steve Foster, Ken Winnikin, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to the cast of Slow Horses for delightingly devouring six hours of my life as I watched its first season. I'd like to thank Hot Dogs. You love me, I love you, even if it's only in small doses. I'd like to thank the game of baseball, root beer floats, and give a warm welcome to the world to little baby Finley Mateo Rivera. Happy to have you here with us. And as a fellow second born, I have this advice for you right out of the gate, Finley. Don't take any crap from your older sibling starting right now. (laughs) And as finally as a way to send you off into the rest of your week, let's end with this original haiku. Rights only matter if they work towards further inclusion of all. Chins up, everyone.